anomalies of being a church minister in Britain, one among many I should say, is that you are reckoned in the eyes of the law to be working for God rather than any human agency or employer. In a case brought by a Methodist minister in 1984 that ran right to the highest courts in the land in Britain, they declared in their judgment, and I quote, ministers of religion owe their allegiance to God rather than to a terrestrial authority. The Methodist Conference versus Parfit, 1984. Thank you for our honorary elder lawyer who gave me the information. Recently, the government has attempted to remove this anomaly and to bring church ministers into line with every other employer, employee and employer, with a consultation period for submission by churches and interested parties, which is now concluded and we await with bated breath to see any legislation which may follow. There are various reasons for this proposed change but one of them was described in the following, what they probably thought was humorous headline, clergy gird their loins for union action. And articulated by Chris Bell, who's the clergy and church workers national secretary for the trade union Amicus. This is what he said. Europe has decided that workers should have rights and yet UK law allows clergy to fall through the net because they are not seen as workers and not seen as employees. This kind of anomaly gets us all a bad name and it's just not fair to clergy. We want to put it right. And he then cites a meeting at which speaker after speaker from the clergy told stories that, I quote, made one weep that they could be treated little better than bonded slaves in 21st century Britain. No, this is not a complaint about the way that I am treated. And where such treatment happens, it is clearly unacceptable and needs to be rectified, but not by recourse to law. In the title for the next in our series, in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, which we've called Keeping First Things First, such disputes between Christians should be settled out of court. So let's read together the relevant section before we look at it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the first 11 verses. You will need a Bible. If you don't have one, there are Bibles around you get one out of the pews or ask one to, someone to pass one to you. If you're not sure where 1 Corinthians is, it's towards the end of the New Testament, page 1147 in the Pew Bibles. One Corinthians chapter six. If any one of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint us judges, even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've already been completely defeated. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's word. If you were here last week in our series, you'll see that at the end of chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, dealing with a case of gross immorality within the church in Corinth, states a principle. Verse 12, chapter 5, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. He says that the church and the Christian, and especially those in Christian leadership, are not to sit in judgment on the behaviour of people who are not Christians. A salutary reminder to all of us. That is God's business. Instead, the church is to put its own house in order by dealing with issues of discipline within its own membership. Now in chapter 6, he turns to another scenario. Not the church judging the world, but the world judging the church. He says in verse 1, there is a dispute and the word is a technical term for a lawsuit, between two members of the church in Corinth. The action involves an accusation of what's called cheating, in verse 8, a word which relates to property or financial or business dealings. As most of the Christians in Corinth came from a poor and dispossessed background, this probably almost certainly means that the litigants were leading or prominent members of the congregation. And this ties in with what we've already seen in the early part of 1 Corinthians, that it was a church riven by cliques and factionalism. So the issue is an issue of business or property between two Christians. And this dispute has now been taken before the civil magistrates in Corinth. Such things were common in Greek society. Like our own society, the Greeks loved litigation. Everybody loved a juicy legal case, with all the attendant scandal which was aired in public, actually in the marketplace, at the place called the judgment seat, or it was known as the Bema, in the Greek word, in Corinth. And so this case has now been referred to the civil magistrates in Corinth, this dispute between two Christians in the church. Now at this point, reading this two two millennia later, you might ask, so what? Isn't that what the courts are for? But what is surprising is the incredulity, how dare you do such a thing, and seriousness with which Paul takes and views this action. Whereas before in chapter 4 he has said to the Corinthians, I don't want to shame you, he now sets out to shame them. A very serious step in a shame culture like that in Corinth, and one which he only takes in one other place in all his writings, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 34. Paul's horrified response is, shame on you. So, why does he think that two Christians taking legal action against each other is such a serious step? And to bring this up to date, why would we regard it as far less serious, if not acceptable in our society? That is the challenge we need to hear, expressed by one of the leading commentators, Gordon Fee, on 1 Corinthians, who writes, This is obviously still a very difficult word for believers whose values tend to place such a high priority on property that a number of hermeneutical ploys, that's a Greek way of saying 
making the Bible mean what you want it to mean, have been established to get around the plain sense of the text. There are simply too many of us with vested interests in the present age for us to have any desire to hear it applied to the contemporary church. So much is this true that many spend most of their time trying to justify actions that are openly contrary to what the text says. And this, I would say to you, is what we cannot do, what we must not do, if we really want to hear what God is saying to us today through his ever-contemporary word. So, what are the reasons why Paul takes this so seriously? What are the reasons why Paul says, if you're a believer and have a dispute with a fellow believer, you're not to take it to some external civil court, you're to deal with it within the church. And I want to suggest to you there are four closely linked, related reasons in the text here, four reasons why Christians should not go to law against one another, but instead settle them in the church. The first and most detailed reason, which we'll spend a little longer on, is somewhat surprising. It is almost certainly not the first argument you and I would advance, and I suspect many of us would not have even thought of it. Namely, that to take such action trivializes our future destiny. It trivializes our future destiny. Christians are people who live at one and the same time in two ages. We live in this present age, but we belong to a future age that is to come. The New Testament calls this age this present evil age. And it refers to the future as the age to come. We are future people living in the present. And our future prospects, what we expect certainly in the future, the word the Bible uses for that is hope, our future prospects determine how we live in the present and how we view and evaluate the culture and society around us. So our future prospects should affect our actions and attitudes in the present. Unfortunately, like the Corinthians, so easily we focus on the present with very little thought about the future. And that is what these two litigants were doing in Corinth, in the legal action to which the church was assenting. So in regard to this present issue of settling disputes between Christians, Paul's immediate focus is to shift to the future and say, look, think for a moment about what's going to happen in the future. And then relate that to how you're dealing with this issue now in the present. That's a broad principle, but here he applies it to settling disputes. And he says, although Christians have no business judging other people, now, one day in the future, they will have a prominent role in judging the world. And so Paul asks several rhetorical questions in this passage. A rhetorical question, of course, is one where you ask a question and you don't give the answer because it's so obvious. Or should be. So his first question is, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The idea of God's people, the word saints there, by the way, doesn't mean some super spiritual heroes. It's the New Testament's way of describing all Christians who have been set apart by God. He says that the idea of saints participating in the future judgment is not one that you hear in Christian circles. I have yet to await, although it may well happen, some modern song that is based on this concept. The most interesting if someone would like to write one. But it was well known to the Jewish people. And it was largely based on one of the prophecies in the book of Daniel. Daniel 7 verse 22 in the Greek Old Testament says, 
judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was on earth, transferred that privilege or extended it to his own people. Do you remember the story recorded in the Gospels where that rich young man who was a ruler in the synagogue came and wanted to follow Jesus and Jesus told him to give up his wealth and he went away sad because he had great possessions. And at the end of it, uh, Matthew records in his Gospel, in Matthew 19, Matthew records that at the end of it, Peter turns to Jesus on behalf of this the apostles, and says, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus answers, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit also on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so Paul here extends that privilege, not just to apostles, but to all Christians. He says, don't you know the saints will judge the world? And if that were not surprising to the Corinthians, and let's face it to most of us, he then asks an even more surprising rhetorical question, which extends the definition of world beyond human beings. Verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? The angels here must be fallen angels, those who were part of the rebellion, when Lucifer or Satan fell from heaven, whose fate is mentioned in 2 Peter 2 verse 4 and in Jude Verse 6. So he says, Christians, in the future, you are future people and you will judge the world, including fallen angels. Now, what's the point of all this? Paul's telling point to the Corinthians is this. If your future destiny is to judge the world, including angels, then in comparison with that, this fallout in the church between two of your members is a trivial matter. And if this is the case, then there are at least two related challenges. The first is expressed in verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints. Now the word ungodly there does not refer to the moral character of the civil judges, magistrates in Corinth. Or even suggest that Roman courts were corrupted and that's the reason why you wouldn't go to them. In fact, if you know the story in the book of Acts that we looked at, Last year, when Paul was in Corinth, he received very good justice in this very place at the judgment seat in Corinth from the Roman proconsul Gallio. You can read the story in Acts chapter 18. No, the word ungodly or unrighteous here refers to their standing before God. They have not been declared righteous in the sight of God because they have not believed in Jesus. So why should the Corinthian Christians, saints, those who have been put right with God, and set apart for his service, turn to such people whom one day they will judge to arbitrate in an internal dispute, rather than sorting it out among themselves. Why involve non-Christians in judging your disputes? And he then goes on to say, if these Corinthian saints are going to judge the world, including the magistrates in Corinth, surely they can sort out a minor dispute among themselves. Why, he says, even the least of you ought to be up for that and could be organised to do that. Now, what sort of contemporary application does that have to us? If you know your history, you may recall that with the emergence of Christendom, after the Roman persecution, when Christianity became the religion of the empire, and then to Europe and beyond, ecclesiastical courts, church courts, were set up, which actually went way beyond this, and judged in all sorts of issues, 
with the consequent abuse that followed. However, now post-Christendom, the pendulum has swung back in the opposite direction, back to Corinth, where the recourse of most Christians is to the legal process. Now, while this is necessary and appropriate in cases where the law of the land has been broken, where vulnerable people are threatened and abused, as in the recent tragic child abuse cases within church circles, there are many areas, I believe, where we need to recapture the sense of outrage and shame that Paul felt, the strategy advocated, and the future perspective which underlies it, which we so often lack. What is addressed here are disputes between Christians within a local church. And the challenge is that we should not rush off the law to sort them out. We should put our own house in order. We should deal with them as Christians should, as Christ taught. And the failure of these two men is a failure of the whole church in Corinth. If we cannot do that, or we do not do that, then it raises a second issue which Paul goes on to address. Failing to deal with disputes between Christians, recoursing instead to law, not only trivializes our future destiny, but secondly, compromises our Christian integrity. What is a Christian church? A church like this. Essentially, it is a church of people who have been reconciled to God. In a moment, well, a few more moments, we'll share in communion together. Uh, some elders will serve you. They're in a slightly elevated place so that you can see them. That is the only reason. The only reason I'm in this elevated place, it's the only place in this building that I can see everybody and everybody can see me. It is not because in any sense I am morally superior. No, all of us came the same way. All of us came through the same door, the low door, at the level ground of the cross. We came in the words of the hymn writer, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. We are a community of reconciled people. As Paul puts it later in this letter, God willing, we'll get to it in the autumn, chapter 12. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. We were all given the same spirit to drink. Now, that spiritual unity must be expressed practically in harmonious relationships between Christians within a local church. It doesn't mean, of course, that Christians never fall out. The church is not only described as a body, but also a building. And it's a building that's under construction. But where there are disputes, where there are disagreements between us, which there'll always be, the church which possesses the Holy Spirit should be able to sort them out and bring about reconciliation. So, when Christians fall out and fail to do that, it is a source for shame. So Paul seeks to shame the Corinthians, whom, as we've seen, prided themselves on their wisdom. Wisdom was one of the buzzwords in the congregation. It is a source of shame when disputes are not resolved within the church. Look what he says in verse 5. I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Where there are unresolved disputes, where Christians fall out and are not reconciled, it is a source of shame. And it is a greater source of shame when they not only fail to sort them out themselves, but then take them to some external agency, some civil court. It is a source of scandal when it is exposed to the outside world, the world outside of the church. And so in verse 6 he says, But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. 
Now it is significant that the Lord Jesus Christ said that the identifying mark of his followers was the love they had for one another. You remember what he said in that final discourse in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. We should know the verses by heart. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples because you have loved one for the other. Now imagine in a church where this is not the case. Then the name of Jesus is dishonoured. And the integrity of the church which bears its name is compromised. Now I don't need to remind you of some of the kind of disputes between Christians which have been and are still aired in public in our own land. The press loves these kind of cases. It is an shame, it is an affront to the name of Christ. It is so painful that even to mention it, I know some of you, it brings tears to your eyes. And grief to the heart of God and we grieve the Spirit of God and such things need not be necessary. But where they are happening, Christian integrity is compromised. No wonder that such churches continue to decline. And in some cases, a lampstand has been removed altogether by the Lord, rather than letting his name be dishonoured. So here are the first two things that happen when Christians go to law rather than settling their own disputes. It trivializes our future destiny, compromises our Christian integrity. There are two more reasons that he goes on to deal with. The third one is this. It reveals our misplaced priority. In verses 7 and 8, Paul now directly, directly addresses the two litigants in the case, the accuser and the accused. Look what he says in verses 7 and 8. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers. You see, people embark on, why do people embark on legal em enterprises? For two reasons, usually. One is that they hope to gain by winning and secondly, they hope to restore their reputation. Paul says, if you do this as a Christian to a Christian brother, no matter what the outcome, you are a loser. Leon Morris comments, to go to law with a brother is already to incur defeat, whatever the result of the legal process. If you are a Christian, then claiming your rights and winning a verdict or money from another Christian should not be the most important thing. In fact, he says, if you're the person who's been cheated, if you're the person who's been wronged, he says, it's better to lose out than to retaliate and let the matter go public and the name of Christ be dishonoured. Better to lose out and be cheated than to cheat or damage a brother. Now such an attitude, let alone such a strategy, to walk away rather than claiming your rights, even when you're in the right and have been wronged, is very rare, it is completely countercultural. But being a Christian is completely countercultural, is it not? I have known cases of Christians who have done this usually against legal advice, and they have lost out financially. But I tell you this, they have gained spiritually and in the eyes of God, because God says, those who honour me, I will honour. Now, why would anyone you say want to do this? Well, because Christians have a different priority in life. My priority is to honour God and his Son. 
Am I prepared to go into a legal case with a fellow Christian from my church in which, even if I'm in the right and seem to be in the right, the name of Jesus is discredited as Christians are publicly seen to fall out? If money and financial considerations are my goal, then I will do it. But if I'm a Christian, my priority is different. The Christian has a different priority. Jesus said, don't worry about these things. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Always say, it's not money that we're worried about, it's our reputation that's at stake. But surely, it is God's reputation that comes first. And if it means my reputation suffers, I can leave that with God. Because I not only have a different priority, I am following a different path. I am seeking, by God's grace, to follow in the path of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Peter say in his first epistle? When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In doing so, I'm walking, following in the steps of the Saviour. When I do not do that, my Christian integrity, whether I'm in the right or in the wrong, is compromised. And what about the other party? The Christian who's cheated a fellow Christian. The challenge for him was not suffering wrong, but actively doing wrong and defrauding a fellow Christian. A double sin, as one writer puts it, of sinning against ethical standards and against brotherly love. And this not only says something about his priority, but also indicates a fourth factor, the last one, which is the most serious of all. It questions our real identity. Verses 9 to 11. Once again, Paul asks another rhetorical question. Don't you know something which they and we should know? Don't you know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, he says. Don't fool yourselves. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drinkers, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The inference is that if we continue to practice such things, it calls into question whether we really belong to God and whether we are part of his kingdom or this world's kingdom. Defrauding someone falls into the category of the wicked. That's probably why thieves and greedy are included in the list. But why the other eight sinful practices listed here? I don't want to spend time talking about them particularly, but I would say this, it is not a comprehensive list. If you read through the list here and say, oh, that's good, my sin isn't included there, I'm okay, you've missed the point. Why does Paul list these particular things? because they were sins to which the Corinthians were particularly prone in the city in which they lived. Sexual vice was rife, and the list includes, notice, alongside both heterosexual and homosexual extramarital practices on level footing. And as Paul recalls those from Corinth who responded to the gospel he preached there, he identifies those Christians who practice these sins but no longer. In one of the most telling and powerful descriptions of Christians in the New Testament, he says, as he thinks of the congregation, and that is what some of you were, or in the more familiar older rending, and such were some of you. Great picture, isn't it? Imagine Paul mentally in his mind, he lived all that time in Corinth, that couple of years. He preached the gospel, and people from all these backgrounds came to faith in Christ. And they were the ones who made up the church. And so he says to them, having listed all these things, he said, that's what some of you were like. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel that transforms people. 
transform people, what God has done for them. Look what he says. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The action of God here, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is described in these three telling phrases. Each of them is in the verbal form which expresses completed action. Done. He says, you were washed, cleansed from the filthy moral lifestyle that you once lived. You were given a fresh start, symbolized perhaps by baptism, which is a visible picture of washing. You were sanctified, that means set apart for God's service, to live a life that is holy and different. You were justified, declared right before God, accepted as just because of what God did for you, the just for the unjust, Christ died to bring you to God. 1 Peter 2 verse 18. So he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, using his full title, all he is and has done, and by the Spirit of God, that life-transforming, powerful person of the Trinity who indwells every Christian, he says, you Christians in Corinth, you have a new identity. And you will one day inherit the kingdom of God. Now, says Paul, if this is what you really are, if you really are different, if this is what God has done for you, you are to live like that. What we must be. You see, what God has done for us must come first. But what we're to do and must do must follow it. And make no mistake from the text here. This may ruffle a few theological feathers when he challenges professing Christians about their real identity and whether they will inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible always has this balance. He challenges them and then he says, and such were some of you. What God has done for us must come first, but what we are and must do must follow it. If it does not, if as a Christian you continue, this does not mean that you fall into sin from time to time, even those besetting sins to which we're individually prone. What he's saying is if consistently we live this kind of lifestyle, if we constantly cheat our fellow Christians without compunction, with no conscience, then it questions our real identity and our ultimate destiny. Did not Jesus himself say, again in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7 verse 16, by their fruit, you will recognize them. This is the challenge of God's word. I've almost finished, but let me say two things in conclusion before and in preparation for coming to the Lord's table. First of all, if you are not a Christian, then whatever you may have done, whatever lifestyle you may be leading, it may be something listed here. It may be something that the world thinks is far less offensive. But sin is sin, whatever it is. And if that habit grips you and you think there is no way I can make a new start, I have good news for you. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God has made a way by which you can be washed. By which you can be set apart. By which you can be put right with God. And as you look around this congregation, if you knew the stories of the people in this congregation and in every congregation, if the truth were told, and it need not be told because it has been cancelled out by God and he remembers our sin no more, but if the truth were told, and such were some of you. And this is the great, this is, okay, I began with talking about ministers and union rights. Forget it, as far as I'm concerned. The only thing that is worthwhile in being privileged to be a minister of God's word 
is that you hold out good news to people. That God can do something that you will never do by your own efforts. He can transform you. He can change you. He can set you apart. He can use you in his service. And he will declare you right on that day of judgment when you stand before God because Christ stands in your place. The just for the unjust to bring you to God. So, if you are not a Christian, as you come to this table, the challenge of God's word is this. Be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5. The Apostle Paul says, as ambassadors for Christ, in his second letter, we implore you, be reconciled to God. Here's the gospel. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God has made a way by which you can be reconciled to him. You will never reconcile yourself by your own efforts. You will never make it. You cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But God has stooped down in love That's why we sang these great songs. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. This is the greatness of the gospel, that God so loved, that he gave, that you might be reconciled to God. Now, as an ambassador of Christ, a very poor one I recognize, I appeal to you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And if you're not, this evening you have an opportunity. You can come to this table for the first time in repentance and faith, with nothing in your hands, in confession of your sin. And as Christ, he will receive you, he will reconcile you to God, he'll put his spirit within you, and he will give you the hope of eternal life. That's the first thing I want to say at the Lord's table. Here's the second one. If you are a Christian, then you cannot afford to be in any kind of dispute with any other Christian especially one within the same fellowship, the same church. And whether or not it involves a legal case, you need to be reconciled with your brother and sister. Let me remind you of the words of Jesus again in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now I've been a pastor long enough to know that in churches there are disputes that sometimes go back years. Some of them go back generations. Where Christians can come and break bread together and yet they're not speaking to one another. And I tell you, it's wrong. It dishonors Christ. You need to be reconciled with your brother. And if you come and take this bread and wine, and if that's happening in in your life, maybe someone in this congregation, then I say to you, as soon as this service is over, you go and sort it out with them. And if they're not here, then you pick up the phone, you write the letter, you go and visit. Because to do otherwise denies the gospel that you profess. Notice what Jesus goes on to say and the legal connotations. Settle matters quickly with your adversaries taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer. You may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you'll not get out until you've paid the last penny. Matthew 5, 23 to 28, 26. And I tell you this, most cases between Christians that come to court need never have done so if they'd come to the Lord's table together first. In fact, I'll go further. 
every case of dispute between Christians that goes to court could have been sorted out at the Lord's table first. And if you are the wrong party, be willing to forgive. Ask the Lord to remove bitterness from your heart. And if you're the one who has wronged another, or even suspect you may have done, and notice the initiative in these verses and also in Matthew 18 as well. If you've been sinned against, you take the initiative and go to the person. So at the Lord's table, be reconciled to God, be reconciled to one another. This is the time, and this is the place. May God help us to put his word into practice. Now before we come to